0: That's org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Today's program was brought to you by 100 Bogart Street, the brand new co-working space in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Learn more at 100bogart.com.
2: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network Broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. One of the big food trends for
3: 2018 is seaweed. Is it the new kale? Find out on this episode of Tech Bites. Hello, hello, Heritage Radio Network listeners tuning in from about 165 countries around the world. It's about a million listens a month. Tuning to Tech Bytes, the weekly show where we talk to innovators and influencers in the food tech space. And today we have a studio that is filled with people. We have all the mics being used. We are doing a Roundtable on seaweed because it is a big trend. It is growing. It's not just for sushi anymore, and um, it's probably here to stay, and you'll probably be seeing a lot more of it. So, we've put together um, a panel of folks to talk about it. Joining us today, we have Will Horowitz and Matt LeBeau. They're both co founders of a company called Akua, and they have a very interesting vertically integrated company that's just starting out where they have both seaweed farms in Maine and production on seaweed snacks like kelp jerky. Matt, thank you for coming. I'm going to have everybody say hello so we can sort of match the names to the voices.
4: Okay, I'm Matt. Nice to meet you. And Will. This is Will Harvest. Nice to meet you.
3: And we also have Mark Cooper, who is the founder of Bluefields, which is a very interesting, complex, but Fascinating project to put together a global marketplace for seaweed, Um, a common marketplace utilizing some of the new cryptocurrency technology a little bit as well.
5: Yeah. Hello, everyone.
3: It's super ambitious.
5: It's pretty ambitious, but I think we're going to start off in a way that keeps it simple.
3: Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And we are going to start this show off uh, in the way that we start every show. Well, we'll go around the shipping container talking about apps, apps we love, maybe something new we've just discovered or a favorite that's been sitting on our home screen for the last 10 years. We will start off with our engineer for the day, Vitor Hirsch. Vitor, how are you?
6: The other David. Hi.
3: Today, the part of David <laughs> Tadashore will be played by Vitor Hirsch.
6: I'm doing, doing well. How are you? Good. Great. Uh, today I have an app uh, for meditation.
3: Oh, we like meditation apps. Mindfulness so, is also a big trend for 2018.
6: Yeah, and uh, it's pretty simple. It's just called Breathe, and it has cool colors, and it has pulses of... Uh, you can set the intervals of uh, the breathing, and you can see it visually, or you can also hear it. So it has this kind of cool pulsating music that goes with it, too according to what you set as the how many you know the intervals the the seconds of breathing and stuff so it's pretty pretty good pretty simple
3: and do you use it regularly
6: i should use it more uh but (laughs) i tried at least you know every morning to do a little bit uh at least five minutes and it helps but uh i yeah working toward be a bit better meditator a word. Mindfulness. Mindfulness.
3: Mindfulness. They say that even five or ten minutes a day can, can, make a big, can make a big change sort of on your mental, emotional outlook for the day.
6: Yeah. I'm, I'm usually too busy being stressed to meditate.
3: Just breathe. <laughs> the app is called Breathe. Yeah. Great. Um, that's that's a one that we haven't heard, um, but meditation apps are, are very popular on the show. Mark, do you have an app that you really like right now?
5: You know, I have one that I've been using for about a year now that I just get consistent satisfaction from. It's called Scannable. And it's pretty straightforward. You can take a photo of a document, it'll automatically kind of smoothen it out. So if there are any wrinkles or folds, it'll smoothen it out. And places where you know you might question readability, it actually fills in some of the letters and makes it clearer for you. And then you can just send that document wherever you want. So it's pretty utilitarian. Um, but I just find that every time I look at the scanned doc, I'm like, wow, that was super easy.
3: And turn, it makes it even easier for an entrepreneur to have an office with their smartphone wherever they are.
5: Yeah, yeah, exactly.
3: Younger folks listening won't know what I'm talking about, but it basically turns your phone into a fax machine.
5: Which, who would, I mean, you know, that's that's an incredible, an incredible power, you know, so... <laughs> Yeah, so it's a it's a good app. It you know lets you sign off on things pretty quickly and just send it where you need to.
3: That's great. Well, do you have an app that you like right now?
4: Hmm. Um, let's see. I have a couple going on right now. I think uh, I have a good app hack right now. Okay. Do like hacks? Absolutely. Okay. So, so I'm a pretty avid uh, forager. Um, and Forager wild, for things to eat. F- for food. It, um, food in the wild? Food in the wild. Okay. Um, so I study a lot of mycology and foraging and wild edibles. And so I got, there's, I got a really, really good one that I just started using, which is farm logs. And it's for farming, but this way where, this way for foraging, you can actually use it to track soil temperatures and water logs and you know rain and... Temperature, for, you know, atmospherically, and, and everything you need to make sure that you know when to go to certain places. So there's really nothing like that for foragers. So <coughs> that's my that's my app hack for the day.
3: Is it a free app? It is a free app. Huh. Yeah. Interesting. We haven't had much farm technology on the show, but we might there's investigate that. I'm sure yeah. that I'm I'm sure there are <laughs> bunches of them. Yeah. Okay, so hacking farm logs if you're a forager. Yes green produce like plant foraging would you be foraging um like oysters or clams on the seashore Yes, we do
4: we do i do a lot of ocean foraging and and bay and and i do a lot of just land based from pennsylvania all the way up to maine and we sell a lot we have a little general store in the city where we sell a lot of stuff and cook a lot of stuff
3: okay interesting matt do you have an app that you like right now
7: I don't know that I like it, but it's been the one that I've been using the most. It's just called So you do. Yeah, subway time. And I live right next to the RF and G trains, and there's always one of them that is not working. And I'm often going to different neighborhoods to meet with people during the week. And uh it has been a lifesaver because it's for me, it's the most dependable in terms of telling me when a train's coming, uh, or if I need to hop on a city bike or do something like that.
3: The subways in the New York metro area have been devastatingly difficult and infuriating for a good year or two, and it seems like it's getting worse. So subway time could be extremely helpful. Is it an independent app where they're pulling information from the MTA, or is it an MTA, Metropolitan Transit Authority, the entity that runs the subways? Do we know who created the app? I I think
7: it's somehow related to the MTA but you can um, pull,
3: I think you can pull information from their website. I'm just curious. Yeah.
7: But what what it does is it tells you if an alternate train's running on the, the track that you yes. want to be on. Uh,
3: Lots of work, maintenance work, weekends, nights, and then a lot of um, subway emergency type situations happening. Also.
7: Yeah. Well, you had some uh, frustrated passengers at time, which then they just start running the trains uh, express past that station.
3: Yes. Exactly. <laughs> That's happened to me a few times. Yeah. Um, also tangentially to that is always charge your phone before you leave. I had yes. a friend who got stuck on a train for about an hour, so you definitely want to have full, full power, <laughs> so you can maybe use that time to scan documents and yeah. do some meditation and <laughs> just you know catch up on your to-do list. Do some foraging. Forage, exactly. yeah. <laughs> Oh, subway car foraging.
4: Mm.
3: <laughs> okay. As I said at the top of the show, we have a we have a jam-packed panel here. And seaweed's something I've been wanting to cover for a long time just because it's such a growing trend. It's definitely growing in the food category. Um, I've looked at a bunch of different articles and statistics online. We're looking at seaweed snacks and food at about five hundred million dollars a year, I think, in the United States. Five years ago people would have said seaweed what but now all those little seaweed nori snacks and different things are extremely popular it's a superfood it's vegetarian it's sustainable agriculture so it has all of the points that people are looking for right now part of the reason why seaweed such a trend though is because outside of the food category there was even just an article in the New York Times recently about seaweed being the secret umami ingredient in recipes which is true you can get a lot of umami out of seaweed in addition to delicious snacks and and treats seaweed is also used in health and beauty products it's used in other industries and plastics and it it's not just a super food it's this kind of super natural element that has multiple multiple uses so It's growing because of that reason, because of its flexibility, because it's sustainable, because it's relatively inexpensive. But the big problem is that it is an extremely fragmented marketplace, both in the United States and globally. It's not traded on a commodities exchange like a corn or orange juice or coffee. Um, So it's just kind of out there. Is it a farmer's market product? Is it an agricultural bulk industry product? It's kind of everything in between. So everyone here is is starting a business focused towards seaweed. And I guess I'll just ask everyone real quickly, you know, aside from, you know, the big broad strokes, what is your incentive to jump into this market? Well, we'll start with um, Matt. For me,
7: you know, I've always been... Kind of very health conscious. I cook a lot of my own meals, and um, that's kind of what brought kelp to my radar a couple years ago. Superfood. Yes, exactly. And then um, I looked at, I read some news articles about what some of the people at Green Wave were doing up in uh, Connecticut, uh, and that really kind of struck home with me as well because a lot of what their mission in terms of putting out of work fishermen back to work and improving the ecology. Um, you know, I grew up in an area where it wasn't sea agriculture, but it was uh, the steel industry was nearby and when that kind of went away I saw some of the fallout in that area. And so what they were doing really resonated with me and so uh, when I saw, you know, what Will and Courtney had started working on in terms of the kelp jerky, I, you know, was very quick to, to get involved uh, because it kind of struck, you know, a chord with me from a health, ecology and uh, economical perspective.
3: Which is a nice pass the baton to Will. And you're a chef, so yep. making snacks is part of your game.
4: It is, uh, very much so. And, and so, you know, we have the restaurants uh, Duck Cedary and Harry and Edda's, uh in these village in downtown. And uh, we've been cooking with seaweed for many, many years. And my grandfather, uh, starting out when we were kids, was a fisherman in the Tippelong Long Islands. So we grew up around sea fe- seaweed. It was always. You know whoever's the youngest kids of the family had to collect seaweed and wash it off for the clam bakes and so on so it was always a part of our food and what we did in our heritage and like you said that that great Sifton article with uh, seaweed as an umami value so we've known about this for a long time and a lot of great chefs for years have been using it for that extra depth and a lot of dry seaweed we're just now and hopefully more so seeing as a fresh product in kitchens which is super super exciting and you know, for me, a lot of what I do and study as a chef now is um, food waste and sustainable ingredients and how do we figure out how to take a look at what's sustainable and add more value to it and, and inspire more farmers, more trade, more organization around it. And seaweed is the top of the list. It's, it's arguably, I'd say, potentially the most sustainable large-scale agriculture in the world right now. And it's zero input and all the other reasons like you said and so how do we make it more valuable and for me as a chef that's my biggest incentive
3: well the Japanese and Chinese and Koreans and people in Asia have been cooking with sea f- with seaweed for hundreds of years and certainly many of the initial uh, seaweed food preparations that we are used to and learned about came from Japan and I think also you know agar agar and gelatin yep. and the stability of the gelatins at different temperatures and everything. I think agar agar probably came into the uh, global culinary realm when Fran Audrius started using it to make some of his you know, noodles that wouldn't melt. And, from and a and restaurant anything. side. From a restaurant it's side. Industrially. Yeah.
4: Many years, but absolutely. And so we, we've used it from then. And, and you know, part of our vision was, okay, we know that all these Asian countries have a huge history in seaweed. How do we how do we re envision it as an American product or North American product or Western product? Jerky. Jerky. Yep. <laughs> how do we, what what was what would it look like if soy sauce and toasted sesame oil never existed? And we have a long history of and it here. And then it's barbecue. You know, <laughs> yeah, <it> maybe. <laughs> but you know, First Nation people from here to all sorts of Scandinavian countries to all over the place, you know, have a beautiful, beautiful history of using seaweed.
3: Well, because it's. From the shoreline, so if yeah. it's a fishing culture and an aquaculture and a culture that's you know used to eating things from the ocean, then seaweed and sea vegetables are certainly one of them. Absolutely. I was reading that there are fifty thousand different species of seaweed, yeah. and that they some you know mastermind complex of researchers. Are targeting that the seaweed market is going to be $87 billion globally by 2024 is a recent study that just came out that I was reading, which is breathtaking. So Mark, you took a look at all this amazing seaweed superfood stuff happening and you thought seaweed exchange.
5: Yeah, yeah, kind I mean, of. I, I mean, it, I, it, it, I
3: wouldn't think that when I was looking at all the seaweed stuff.
5: <laughs> <laughs> so it, it came out of a breakfast that I had with a good friend. Um, He's a lawyer and was working with a client to protect some IP related to seaweed. And just out of that conversation, I went home and I, you know, I've been exploring kind of what I wanted to do next. I've been doing startups for years and was ready to, or I'm ready to look at my next project. And you know, I just started researching seaweed. It ended up researching it for, you know, like three or four days straight. Um, really amazed by all the academic and kind of um, research areas that are coming out of it, not just food related, but as you talked about in multiple categories. Um, I saw a stat that said something like, there are usually about 180 studies per year taking place now, where about, you know, 10 years ago, it was like, you know, maybe 20 to 30 studies per year. So the interest is definitely going up multiple categories like feeding seaweed to livestock as a replacement for antibiotics. Seaweed has a lot of prebiotic um, properties. Um, so not only does it make animals healthier, it also actually reduces their methane emissions by 90 to 95%. And you know, for those who follow climate change, methane emissions from cows specifically is a huge contributing factor to global warming. Um, the impact that seaweed has on ecosystems in the ocean Um, it produces oxygen, which helps fight um, a lot of the pH level um, fluctuations that are taking place in the ocean now from too much carbon. Um, So, you know, seaweed does a great job of creating an ecosystem that makes it easy for shellfish to thrive. Shellfish, when they're young, are very sensitive to carbon dioxide Um, and for other species as well. Um, Everything from packaging... To potential biofuel uses. I mean, it, it, the list goes on and on. So that's what really brought me into it, and really got me thinking: Wow, this plant is potentially the most valuable plant on Earth, and not you know from a monetary standpoint, but from the amount of good that it could actually do for us and for the world.
3: So not just super food, like super plant that's going to save the world. <laughs> literally I I think so potentially actually
5: yeah I mean the the fertilizer capabilities that it has could replace a lot of the you know more kind of nitrogen-based fertilizers that we use in our regular agriculture Um, it's got a bunch of hormones that plants really respond to Um, yeah I mean again is there a seaweed council
3: that exists some sort of like seaweed council seaweed association that exists right now and if the answer is no might be a side project for people in this shipping container right now. There
4: is an international council council. For for farmers.
3: Nothing domestic.
4: Uh, nothing that I know specific domestic, but it's it's definitely a semi close knit uh community might for be sure. something worth
3: thinking about uh, because you know the those associations are not just internally industry facing to bring people together sure. who work, but Most of the councils in the U.S. are responsible for pushing out information into the consumer marketplace and securing important legislation like National Donut Day (laughs) and stuff like that. So, you know, and doing, you know, Got Milk, you know, campaigns and things like that. You can have like National National Seaweed Day. I wonder if that exists already. We'll have to take a look. (laughs) Yeah, we'll (laughs) have to
5: take a look. You know, I I know one thing that. Um, There are multiple organizations out there, many at a state level. Um, We're seeing a lot of aquaculture associations um, spending more time kind of like moving, you know, obviously focusing on fish, but also starting to take a look at, wow, seaweed's huge. Um, Because a lot of fishermen are looking for ways to diversify their their income streams. Um, I think one thing that's interesting is that Congress recently passed an amendment uh, to one of the laws that went through. Um, that increase the amount of money that could be paid for carbon capture from seaweed. Um, if you're a factory or an industry that you know puts out certain pollutants,
3: it's interesting. So, it's sort of the seaweed carbon tax reduce your carbon footprint.
5: Exactly. Exactly. Or reverse
3: re- credit.
5: Yeah. Yeah. So carbon credits associated with you know capturing carbon dioxide and other um, other pollutants. Um, with seaweed or
4: algae. That
3: seems very forward-thinking for the government to have acted on that.
4: It was a surprise.
3: I mean, it seems... Wow.
4: Yeah. Okay. Which kind of brings up another note. Be careful where you get your seaweed. Yes. (laughs) Yeah.
3: You you don't want the uh, seaweed that's been used to filter. (laughs)
4: Yeah.
3: (laughs) (laughs) We are going to take a quick break to find out who our amazing underwriters are. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. We keep the lights on and the mics hot entirely out of the generosity of our members, underwriters, and grants. So let's find out who's, who's supporting us today. Stay with us. We'll be back.
1: 100 Bogart Street is finally open and ready for Bushwick. 100 Bogart is a brand-new, state-of-the-art co-working space that provides turnkey workspaces, including open layout desks, meeting spaces, and furnished private offices. Members have access to top-notch amenities such as custom furniture, high-speed internet, spacious kitchenettes with coffee and tea, printers, scanners, and much more. Alongside their professional work environment, 100 Bogart also provides exclusive educational programming for any curious entrepreneur. Heritage Radio Network has made their new office home at 100 Bogart and will host many events there in the future. For more information about their co-working space, visit 100bogart.com and become a member to network, create, and educate.
3: Well, if you're just joining us and you're wondering what the hell you clicked on, this is Tech Bytes, the weekly show on Heritage Radio Network, where we talk to innovators and influencers in the food tech space. And today we are hosting a roundtable on seaweed, which is one of the very big, important food tech trends of the year and probably the century, the future. Joining us today, we have Mark Cooper, who is the founder of Bluefields. That's bluefields.co, C-O. He is building a seafood exchange, a seafood marketplace, which is going to hopefully be a place that's going to standardize and create some market sustainability for this product. We also have joining us Will Horowitz and Matt Labo, who are both co-founders of a company called Akua. That's A-K-U-A dot co, C-O. They are a company that is already coming out of the gate even though they're launching uh, vertically integrated with seaweed farms in Maine, all the way through to production of a kelp jerky snack food. And they're getting ready to launch a Kickstarter campaign at the beginning of March. So before the break, we were just talking about why seaweed is a big trend and it's a superfood. It's a super agricultural product. It does amazing things for the environment, for people, for food, for everything. Um, and so let's start with, let's, let's get back with Will and Matt and just talk very quickly about what a is and what's your first product launch. Take us to the farm and then all the way through to yep, snacks.
4: Um, and it's important to note real quick that what we're talking about is sustainably farmed seaweed. Because there is a long history in, in this country, actually a lot of countries, on uh, wild harvest, um, especially up north where you have these giant kelp forests and that's mainly been for um, for fertilizer and some Important
3: feed. distinction. Yeah, yeah. Wild harvest seaweed and sustainable agricultural seaweed.
4: We've never been very responsible as a culture for wild harvest.
3: We've never been very responsible <laughs> as a culture for wild harvest anything, yeah. protecting the environment anything. So nope. it's um, part and parcel of our bad stewardship.
4: <laughs> so um, I guess, you know, me and Matt... Matt um, Yes, about a year ago or so, and uh, we have two other uh, partners, um, Courtney and Morgan, who can be with us today. Morgan, our our partner, um, is actually in Maine right now, getting ready to harvest in about another month and a half, two months or so, and so she's our farmer, her her and her um, fiance, and um, you know, knowing like Mark said, this is a very early stage, and thus the need for for what he's doing in terms of bringing farmers together is um, we just had a very difficult time really finding the supply that we want. And so we just said, okay, let's step in and let's, let's start our own farm or partner with farms and let's figure out a way that we could start building almost a co-op type situation um, and be able to offer people more fair trade value.
3: So if you had been able to find the raw seaweed product on the market or a market, you may not have started with a farm. Is that?
7: I I would just clarify, it's not that we couldn't find the seaweed out there on the market, but in order to make our kind of model work to produce a consumer product, we had to, you know, find a price that worked for us. And a big issue with buying some of the product that's on the market at the moment is that the processing methods are made really for something that's going to be on the plate, uh, you know, a beautiful noodle or something like that, which the processing time inc- includes a lot of labor and, and cost in it. For us, we you know, our jerky is a blended product. Um, we mix it with uh, mushrooms. And Another superfood. Yes, exactly. So it's superfood
3: on superfood. Mushroom
7: stems yeah. <laughs> too. And, and so that just got us kind of thinking let's find a, a way that we can do this that w- it'll enable us to pay farmers more money for, for what they're producing but also cut some cost out for us to make you know our, our kelp jerky you know a viable product
3: and you're also thinking when you say viable product and when you're talking about the ingredient and labor and costs you're also planning to come out of the gate at a pretty decent scale and production run you're talking about things in the tens of thousands oftentimes we see you know on Kickstarter or pie shell or some of the other Crowdsourcing, crowdfunding platforms. People are making 500 packages or a thousand packages for their first run. But you're coming out. That's pretty, right at a pretty good size.
7: Yeah, and we're just uh, finalizing um, our production with the the copacker right now on that scaled up size. We've done a lot of these batches of a thousand or 600 or you know somewhere in that range, and um, just finalizing that ingredient ingredient scaling. But you know. As you noted, coming out in scale, the reason for that, and as Bill noted several times, is uh, it's adding that value to seaweed, right? We really want to come out and make a, you know, a statement of sorts and say this is a delicious food that is very accessible. You know, it has great shelf life. It's portable. It keeps you filled when you're, you know, getting out of the ocean from surfing or going for a hike or something like that. Or so.
3: trapped in a subway for an hour, <laughs> you could keep it in your bag. That's right. <laughs> Maybe keep you from getting hangry. That's right. <laughs>
7: and uh, reduce those instances of uh, frustrated passengers.
3: <laughs> so you have gone through a little bit of a discovery process, and you've done some other crowdfunding campaigns and small batches, and this is what, what stage of life would you consider this launch?
7: Uh, I would just say it's step two in the... Uh, you know, the broader proof of concept, you know, we did a, um, a pie shell campaign, uh, we fulfilled about 1200 orders or so. It was an excellent kind of learning experience for us. Things about, you know, packaging, how, you know, how porous packaging can impact the product, um, how difficult it can be to scale at certain things, shipping logistics. Um, so this is kind of just that next step and we hope to, you know, kind of hit, you know. 8 to 10x what we did there and uh, learn some more.
3: So most founders, not most, but there's a type of founder who has in their mind an exit, an exit strategy in anywhere from two to five years. Do you have an exit strategy for Akua or... Do you have a long-term strategy for a kua?
4: I mean, for me, it's definitely long-term, and the fact that this is really our, you know, this is our coming out of the gate sort of product. The goal here is to make things accessible, popularize this highly sustainable item ingredient, and so I think we have, you know, a, a lot more products down the road that we're already beginning to test and look at. So.
3: You, you could create a seaweed uh, MSG substitute where it's <laughs> we, like a little shake, you know. Sea, we have like something the like the thing, that in like the works. Shake into the <laughs> pot and then there you go.
4: Absolutely. We have stuff like that in the works. We've done, I, I, my background is in a lot of microbial studies and fermentation. So we've done, I know Mark, you mentioned biofuel stuff. So that's definitely something that I've been looking at and researching. And we have all sorts of great opportunities. But the goal was is to take a blended product, like work with a lot of different you know crop we still know where our crops are you said there's fifty thousand seaweeds we don't know what our soybeans potatoes and corn are yet we're still trying to figure it out for each region so you know it's, it's exciting to be that you know there's only few times you can really say that about something new a new ingredient so
3: that's very true although it's just new to us
4: yeah it's not <laughs>
3: new to lots of other people in the world absolutely without Mostly question. on the asia side
4: without question but even those cultures there's not a huge, huge. there's definitely a variety, but there's not enormous, enormous variety in true. that comparison. True,
3: true. So, Mark, if Bluefields was in existence while they were getting up and running, they would maybe have, a, have had a marketplace to find the different seaweeds. I, I would be curious how you would see a company like Akua potentially integrating into Bluefields because they're both farm producer of product as well as... Product purchaser and product producer.
5: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, so my family um, has a background in tobacco farming. Like my my mom's side of the family were tobacco farmers, and one of the small ones in North Carolina. But they had a local market, and you know, certain times of the year, everybody would bring their harvest, and then there'd be an open bidding system, and they would you know make agreements and sell their stock. Um, and that essentially went away as the industry went through consolidation in the early 80s. Um, so that market was was bought out and, you know, that kind of ended the game if you were a, a certain size farmer.
3: So it's the same kind of thing we've seen agriculturally across the country, exactly. where there used to be a lot of corn and wheat and other crop farmers that then get bought or pushed out as big agri-farming exactly. companies sort of gobble everything up and then start to create...
5: Yeah. And so on the market. And so exactly. And so looking at the, the opportunity around seaweed, you know, one of the first thoughts I had was like, wow, there's going to be a lot of entrepreneurial activity around seaweed. I'd love to see those small companies that actually figure out these markets have a pathway for for continuous growth. And I think having a market is a big part of that. And what I think that means is having a market that they actually own. So the idea behind Bluefields is that the ownership structure actually belongs to the participants in the market, and Bluefields plays more of a role as custodian. And the idea is to just, you know, be more and more kind of hands-off as time goes on and provide just custodial services for the owners of that market. The other part of it is looking at sustainability, which Will was talking about, and what it means to have, you know, an automatic mechanism that... Funds sustainable practices. Um, again, be that around scaling production, or you know, focusing research on certain species, or even building demand in certain markets. And and so, another part of the exchange is being able to vote as a participant to say how you want those proceeds to go to the market or to go to research. Um, so again, that's the general idea around the exchange. I think I think the way it would have worked or. It, hopefully will work at some point. Yeah. Um, we're going to go into pilot uh, towards the end of the summer. Um, is you guys would come on, you would see um, essentially a, a category around um, fresh, wet seaweed, um, which I'm, I'm guessing is kind of where you'd want to start. Um, you'd be able to put out a bid order, and, um, a bunch of companies that produce would look at that bid order and say, "Oh, okay. You know, I've, I actually meet those requirements. I'm raising um, nori or you know kombu or what have you. And here's what I can provide, and here's a timing that you know I could provide it in. And you guys would look at. There'd be an order matching system as part of the exchange, and you could go from there, um, talking about logistics around shipping and what have you, um, and then you know doing the transaction." And once a transaction takes place, you know, we get a small, tiny percentage of that, and that tiny percentage goes into the sustainability fund. You guys would see the amount of money that goes into that sustainability fund, and at a certain time every year, you would vote the amount that you have in your accounts for sustainability funding um, to the, the areas that you think make sense. So that's that's the way the model would work.
3: So so this does not exist for seaweed currently, either in the United States or globally. Is there another type of commodity that has a similar type of exchange that's live now?
5: Not a single commodity. Um, But there are comparables to look at. Like, I would say Alibaba is a good comparable, right? I mean, they they carry everything. Um, But, you know, that model of being able to to allow... uh, a producer or a buyer, no matter what size they are, to actually get involved in a market, see transparency, get access to liquidity that they may not have had before. And as you say, um, potentially, you know, you guys would be buyers in certain cases, and in other cases, you might be sellers. Um, So for example, as part of this pilot, uh, we have a couple of Japanese companies that are actually interested in the seaweed innovation that's happening here in the U.S. What they're actually seeing is that a lot of the traditional seaweed consumption is sticking with older generations. Younger generations aren't adopting it, and they're looking for ways to reintroduce seaweed to their younger generations. Um, and so they're they're interested in seeing what we come up with. And I think that's that's an opportunity.
3: That is very interesting. So Matt, as a Matt and Will and on the farming side, as seaweed farmers, does something like. Bluefields have interest and appeal for you?
7: I think so. I think, you know, especially as he kind of alluded to the, sometimes you'll be a buyer and sometimes you'll be a seller. And I think, you know, in managing the brand part of the business, there will be seasons when we probably have excess capacity and there's times when we may have, you know, a need for additional capacity. So uh, it certainly sounds like something that would just improve our overall
4: I think also the, the the name of the game here too and and the common ground is fair trade right. and being able to offer farmers in a new sector new industry in this country at least fair trade and and that's really our goal you know we're not we we want the farmer to make as much money as they can for the product because our goal is to make more farmers, and we need the product to make as much money as we can. So ever, everyone needs to come together and figure out a system in sync, and and that's the name of the game. We don't want if one party isn't getting what they need for it to financially function as a model, then you know then the whole concept is doomed. <laughs> so,
3: so what does a seaweed farmer producer? Uh, need to do to become a part of Bluefields when this happens later in the year?
5: Yeah, so when we start the pilot later in the summer, um, we're primarily looking to work with producers in the in the Maine and kind of New England area. Uh, Ding!
3: St- Maine and New England area. <laughs>
5: <laughs> Maine's very interesting because I think they've done the most state-wise mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. kind of promote... Um,
4: your farms Safe. are in Maine, right? Well, yeah, and also accessibility to leases, as yeah. Mark could tell you. Know, okay. Very, very difficult right now.
5: Yeah, exactly. And, there, and, they, and I mean, you know, everyone's on top of it. So I, I was at a, a conference uh, Friday evening um, where representatives from Suffolk County, kind of you know, marine management, were talking about, hey, we know you guys are interested in seaweed. We're, we're exploring what the leasing policies look sure. like. Um, but Maine's done a good job of outlining all of that. Um, so that's where we want to start. And then we're looking at you know, very specific types of sellers to see, you know, how the marketplace performs. Um, so I think at this point, if people want to go to our website, if you're an interested producer or buyer, um, just go to our website and submit your email address and we'll reach out to you when we start the pilot.
3: So that website is Co. And if you are interested in finding out more about Akua, their website is akua.co.co also. We're actually out of time, so you're going to have to go online to get more information (laughs) and to learn more about it, uh, because we can't tell you much more here today. If you want to do something in real life, you can check out Akua's Kickstarter launch party, which will be on the West Coast on Tuesday, March 6th from 5.30 to 8 p.m. Um, go to their website. You can get information for tickets. It'll be in Venice Beach. That's pretty exciting.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: We wish you luck on and, that. And we have
4: March 20th. We'll do one, we're going to throw a party society here in New York City. So Excellent. I'm excited so about that.
3: we'll maybe be able to come and check <laughs> that out. Maybe we can all come and see that. If you are interested in getting in touch with me or with tech bites do you have an app that you love? Are you a food tech entrepreneur and you want to come on the show and tell your story? We would love to hear from you you can email us techbites at org. We are on social media at techbites HRN, Instagram Twitter and Facebook. TechBytes is live every Thursday morning at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. We broadcast from the studio in the backyard of Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you missed the live broadcast, you can catch us on demand on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and Simplecast. You can subscribe, download, and leave sparkling five-star reviews. And I think that's it. I think we've covered all the ground we can cover today. I want to thank Will, Matt, and Mark for coming on the show. It was great. That's my phone, which is telling me (laughs) it's time to go. I'm Jennifer Liuzzi, and this is Tech Bytes.
0: Ever wonder what kind of podcast Julia Child would have made? Probably would have been one where she introduced you to all of her latest discoveries and favorite people. And that's exactly the tradition we're following on Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. Join me, Todd Schulk, and your host, and the Foundation's Executive Director, as I bring you inside the Foundation's world to meet the bright lights of today's food universe, just as Julia used to do from her own famous kitchen. New episodes air on Heritage Radio Network Wednesdays at noon Eastern.
7: Listen in.